Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. Hey, y'all. This is LeVar Burton Reads, and I am, as you may have guessed, LeVar Burton. I'm gearing up for a season of all new episodes coming your way in just a few weeks. However, in the meantime... Our talented engineers have been taking some of our favorite past episodes and giving them an incredible, immersive 3D sound treatment. Now, this story was a prime candidate, and it fits perfectly with our current theme this month of paranormal activity. A skeptical reporter goes to Miami to meet the widow of a famous composer and pianist and to check out the widow's claim that she's captured her husband's soul in his piano. <laughs> it's a fun one. Take a listen. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. We are going to get a little fantastical today with a story by the speculative fiction author Carlos Hernandez. It's from his collection entitled The Assimilated Cuban's Guide to Quantum Santeria. I love this title. Carlos often explores those places where science and religion meet, the boundaries between life and what only appears to be life. But the thing that I really love about this story is that it has an amazing sense of humor. The story is called Fantasy Impromptu Number 4 in C-sharp minor, Opus 66, and it borrows that name from an actual piece of music written by Frédéric Chopin. It's a very popular piano piece, and it was actually published posthumously in 1855 even though Chopin had instructed that none of his unpublished manuscripts ever be published. And the story takes us on a reporting assignment with a writer named Gabby. She'll be writing about a very special and enchanting piano. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Fantasy Impromptu, number four, in C-sharp minor, opus 66, by Carlos Hernandez. This isn't any ordinary piano. This is the infamous Bosendorfer Imperial Concert Grand that Václav Balusek had custom-built for his comeback at Carnegie Hall. One of the first things you'll notice is that it has nine extra keys, five whole tones, and four half tones beyond the lowest A of an 88-key piano. All the extra keys are black. I was fascinated by them when I first saw them 15 years ago, and I'm even more fascinated now. They're the bad boys of the piano key world. The kind of piano keys my dad would never let me date in high school. They whisper to me in the way only inanimate objects can sweet-talk the insane. 
play us and you will evoke sounds so forbidden your very soul will thrum. Like everyone, I want my soul to thrum. I run my long nails over the keys like I'm scratching the back of a lover. But playing Balusek's piano uninvited would be unforgivably rude. I'm here at the home of the Balusek's in Coral Gables. Consuela, Vaslav's formidable lawyer wife, is being a proper Cuban host and fetching cafecitos for us, which is how I ended up alone with the piano in the mansion's conservatory. I remind myself that you don't just start playing world-class musicians' priceless instruments, especially not without permission. But I'm still sitting on the bench, petting the keys. Tickling these ebonies, Gabby, I think to myself, might be more than bad manners. It might be sexual harassment. I don't really believe that, but the thought helps me come to my senses. I rise from the bench, take a breath, lift the hair off the back of my neck to let it cool. To remove myself from further temptation, I circle the grand piano taking notes and pictures like a proper reporter should. God, but this piano's a work of art. At first glance, it might pass for a traditional grand lacquered to a gleaming black and oozing old-world Austro-Hungarian charm. But soon, you'll notice the brass and glass touches that a generation ago would have been called steampunk. The scrollwork on the brushed metal hinge of the fallboard. The rectangular portholes in its body, framed by verdigris-veined copper. The gorgeous Rube Goldbergian system of pulleys, wheels, and hinges that make up the gloriously over-engineered pedal lyre. It's the kind of grand piano some billionaire archgeek would order as a showpiece for a living room, more for the eyes than the ears. It's not the instrument I'd expect a world-class pianist like Balusek to commission, and it's really not the vessel I'd expect Balusek to choose as his home for life after death. Did I forget to mention that? <laughs> yeah. In case you've been in a coma for the last decade, Vaslav Balusek is dead. At least his body is. But true believers like his wife have maintained that his soul lives on in this beautiful, diabolical piano. Consuela, maiden name Okendo, returns bearing a silver tray that looks like she lifted it from the cloisters. It's laden with demitasses of espresso and squares of buttered Cuban bread piled up like a carbohydrate tower of Babel. I thank Consuela and pluck myself a demitasse. She rests the tray on the Mondrian coffee table and sits next to me on the parlor's zebra-striped sofa. Apparently, she gives zero fucks about matching decor. Their oft-photographed home used to be filled with B-movie bric-a-brac, back when sci-fi enthusiast Vaslav had a say in matters like these. But even if you believe Vaslav's still alive inside his piano, Consuela's the only one with eyes anymore. So I guess she gets to make all the interior design choices in their marriage now. When I don't take any bread, she says, You have to eat, mi niña. I would never have landed Vaslavito without my curves. Take it from me. Men don't like broomsticks. Ah, the cheerful, feral brusqueness of the Cuban jefa. It's a type I know and have even sought to emulate in many ways. Tireless, cheerful, self-assured women who work 80 hours a week at their jobs, keep their homes impossibly clean, go to church every Sunday, and never, ever, let their kids forget who's in charge. They're great, 85% of the time, but they can be a bit, shall we say, peremptory. 
Like Consuela, they'll tell you to your face you're too skinny, and God help you if they think you're too fat. Thank you, Senora Balusek. I say, but I'm a vegetarian. Cuban bread is made with lard. Now, the typical Cuban jefa would make a passive-aggressive production of hiding how much your words have hurt her. Yes, she would take it as a personal attack that you didn't want to eat her store-bought bread. So I start to strategize how I can get back on her good side when, to my surprise, I see Consuela is embarrassed, apologetic. I mean, Nina, I'm so sorry, she says. It didn't even occur to me to ask, you being Cuban and all. Uh, yeah, I joke to show no harm was done. <laughs> Who ever heard of a Cuban vegetarian? Uh, what's next? Vegan crocodiles? She laughs politely, and after a moment adds, I shouldn't have called you a broomstick. Forgive me. You're so beautiful. You must have more boyfriends than you know what to do with. Since it's required that I return the compliment, I scan her person for inspiration. Consuela's a 48-year-old salt-and-pepper odalisque who's barely as tall as my chin, and I'm 5'3". Her smile has a practiced guilelessness she probably learned while in law school. But she's not dressed for court today. Today, she's cultivating the Miami MILF look. She wears a tight floral blouse and a crucified golden Jesus bobs on her cleavage like a castaway on a raft. Her teal pants, bell at the bottom, and her ratty house chancletas look like they've been passed down from mother to daughter for five generations. I've seen Cuban women dress like this all my life, and genetics guarantee that someday I, too, will dress exactly like this. Though I'll draw the line at the crucifix. Me, I say, what about you? You're beautiful, rich, and single. You're one of the most eligible bachelorettes in Miami. I sip a little cafecito and watch for her reaction. She smiles and gives me an I-see-what-you-did-there look. I'm still married, mi vida. Not according to the law. The court has declared Balusek dead. The law is slow to change. It will come around eventually. Who knows how many lawsuits it will take, but eventually the courts will recognize what has happened to Vaslavito and people like him. Which is what, exactly? There's a little melancholy in the way she tilts her head. Then she says, He moved. I let my eyebrows speak before I do. Moved, as in out of his own flesh? Exactly. His mind persists. He just immigrated out of his former body and into the inural. Immigrating out of your body sounds to me like a pretty good definition of death. Only if you don't have somewhere else to go, she says. And then her gaze guides me to the piano. After a moment, she asks, Do you believe people have souls, Gabby? I never lie during an interview, even when I know my answer may cost me greatly. I suck through my teeth, but tell the truth. No, sorry. Consuela smiles, stands, and offers me her hand. In ten minutes, you're going to wish you had said, not yet. Before we sit on the piano bench, Consuela helps me into a black leather jacket with built-in gloves. It's four sizes too big, but even so, I can feel it's actually an exoskeleton of the python rib variety. A concatenated series of metal rings reside within the jacket's arms and fingers. Consuela fastens me into it from behind and adjusts the arm length so that it fits me. Kind of. She can't help but laugh. 
Oh, Gabby, she says. You look so cute, like a girl playing dress up in her poppy's biker clothes. This is nothing, I reply. You should see me in a panda suit. She has no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, Probably better that way. She unceremoniously plants me on the bench. Right thumb on middle C, left pinky on the C sharp, an octave lower, she says. I place my hands on the keys as instructed. The inural that imaged Balusek's mind and let him keep performing years after it should have been possible has been fitted into this piano. It's about to connect wirelessly to this jacket. It's a little freaky. I keep my hands on the piano keys, but turn to face Consuela. She pats my shoulder and says, This is going to be fun. Relax. The most unrelaxing thing a person can say. While I am still looking at Consuela, the EXO makes my left thumb and pinky play a two-note chord, C-sharp and G-sharp. I turn to look at my hands. Well, hello, Mr. Balasek, I exclaim. I really do exclaim, embarrassingly, fangirlishly. The exoskeleton is not nearly as powerful as I thought it would be. I could resist it if I wanted to. The glove holds the cord for a melancholy second, then leaps, the left thumb landing on C-sharp, the pinky on the G-sharp below it. I watch, amazed as the left glove starts an arpeggio slowly, at first, but quickly gaining speed. A blink later, my fingers are moving faster than I can move them myself. The right glove transforms itself into a fairy ballerina who leaps and runs over the keys, leaving a contrail of dulcet music in her wake. I am not making this music happen, but every time the glove strikes a key, the music shoots up my fingers and passes into my body, just as if I were playing this piece myself. It's so pleasurable and enchanting to feel the music course through me that I forget for a moment to hear it. So I remind myself to listen as well as feel. The piece reminds me of the ad hoc soundtracks pianists of yore would play to accompany silent movies. The black and white scene the music describes is one of peril, pursuit, combat, a runaway locomotive, a showdown at high noon, pirates battling for control of a wave-pitched ship. My fingers race down the length of the keys. The music reaches a climax that reminds me of a car tumbling down a hillside. Will Bonnie and Clyde escape the V8 Ford before it explodes? They do, because the music shifts now to a love story. We see the lovers from behind. They sit on the shore, he wearing a top hat and tailed tuxedo, she in a glistening silver gown and tiara holding hands and watching waves climb up the shore. There is nothing so beautiful in the world as the oversized moon of a silent movie. It grows a face suddenly and winks at them, but they're too in love to notice. They turn from the ocean and face one another. They lean in closing the distance between their lips. They almost kiss. But the music shifts back to the rollicking, riotous fairy gambles where we started. Again, the melody grows ominous. Again, I am falling right to left down the length of the keyboard. Lucifer, cast from heaven and plummeting through the firmament until he finally, with terrible impact, crashes into hell. But this time, a humble coda rises up, murmuring. One hand mumbles out a pianissimo arpeggio as the other dolefully hearkens us back to the earlier love story. Only this time, love is over, never to return. Love is Ophelia, drowned. 
Samson casting one last pleading look at Delilah. Eurydice reaching after Orpheus as she's pulled back into the underworld. All that remains of that great passion is a memory that is even now fading, fading. Then the music stops, and even the memory of love evanesces into nothingness. The leather jacket goes limp. My arms drop dead and slap against my legs. I didn't do a lick of work. The exo did everything, but I'm exhausted, breathless, tousled. I'm simultaneously euphoric and heartbroken. I finally understand what Aristotle meant by catharsis. I turn around to face Consuela. She smiles and shrugs and says, Now you know Vaslevito down to his soul. Wayfair's biggest sale of the year is here. It's Wayday. Right now, you can score up to 80% off at Wayfair. Save on sofas and cookware, dining sets and rugs and beds, wall art, bar cards, floor lamps, sailing fans, home decor, all things outdoor, and way more. All up to 80% off right now. Plus, everything ships free. And flash deals are launching all Wayday long. Don't miss Wayfair's biggest sale of the year. Shop Wayday right now from May 6th at Wayfair.com. Wayfair, every style, every home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Now, let's get back to our story. The piece Vaslav played was Chopin's Fantasy Impromptu Number 4 in C-sharp minor, opus 66, a devilishly difficult composition that has become one of Chopin's most performed works and a kind of rite of passage for piano virtuosos the world over. But even a player piano could be programmed to play the composition flawlessly, if lifelessly. There was only one way to verify that this wasn't just a robotic recording, Vaslav would have to play it again, with me still wearing the jacket. And he would have to play it differently, which he does. The second time around, Vaslav plays it more athletically, less dolorously. I learn later that this is the way most journeymen play it. It's so challenging to perform that merely getting through it is an accomplishment, and so many pianists end up treating it as a showcase for their technical prowess. Yet even here, there are millisecond delays and dynamic changes that carry from the first performance to the second. Now that I have lived inside of Vaslav's style, I can identify some of its qualities through the way he uses me to apply pressure to the piano keys. I feel... I am starting to get to know him. Vaslev Balusek has shared a bit of his very qualia with me. That's quite an achievement. Normally, you can't even get inside someone's qualia when they're alive. And Balusek is dead. And I don't just mean legally dead. 
You won't catch any of the major neural manufacturers claiming they can give your mind a new home after your body dies. They never use the term for them the movies and the media throw around. Cyber reliquary. An inural, they will tell you, is merely a cognitive prosthetic implanted into the brain to help those who have suffered debilitating brain disorders. Like any prosthetic, it's custom-built for the individual. Epileptics get a different inural than those who've suffered a traumatic brain injury. Those with advanced Alzheimer's get a different one altogether. There are common elements, of course. There's always, for instance, an AI that, like an eager infant, learns to mimic the patient's brain, synapse by synapse. Over time, the AI's thinking acquires an uncanny similarity to the patient's. After a training period that can last for months or even years, the inural has essentially become an artificial ganglion that provides the patient's brain with supplementary memory recall and cognitive power. The effects can be positively transformative, as they were for Václav Balasek. I was 14 when Václav Balasek was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. His illness was worthy of global sorrow. The world's most beloved living pianist would all too soon lose his ability to play. The media characterized it as a fate worse than death. He would live to see his gift, his life's work, fall to ruins before him, day to day. That was bad enough, but for millions of teenaged girls like me, for whom Balusek was a particular kind of celebrity crush, not muscular, not macho, but artistic, intellectual, and adorably geeky, it was our first taste of life's cruelty. In the post-diagnosis interviews that followed, Vaslav, holding hands with his wife Consuela, whom I hated back then with unbridled jealousy, vowed to fight the disease. He was a famous proponent of science and futurism. Over the years, he donated millions to the SINS Research Foundation to support a cure for aging, and was, you will remember, an avid collector of sci-fi movie props. He cheerily described advances in medications and deep brain stimulation that could stave off the ill effects of Parkinson's for years. He made me believe he could win. By the time I was a sophomore in college, Vaslav had disappeared from public life. The disease was worsening more quickly than anticipated and wasn't responding to treatment. He hadn't performed in years and most assumed he never would again. And then, back when I was just starting out as a lowly copy editor at the San Francisco Squint, Carnegie Hall announced that Balusek would perform there one night only. Tickets sold out in seconds. Consuela shares some black and white photos of that performance with me. Picture one. A steampunk-inspired Bosendorfer Imperial Concert Grand. Yes, the same one. Sits on the stage. The piano choice is curious, but perhaps the most unusual thing about the shot is that there's no bench on stage. Picture two. Wheelchair-bound Balusek takes the stage, smiling and waving. He's puffy and paunchy. He's aged a thousand years, but most shocking of all is that his hairline is disrupted by a surgery scar as big as a scarecrow's mouth. Consuela shows me more pictures, but they don't really capture what happened next. Vaslav rolled up to the piano. He folded his hands in his lap and never moved them again until the performance was over. He played the grand piano with his mind. Specifically, he played the grand piano with the inural he'd had installed and the wireless connection built into the Bosendorfer. His performance consisted of works he had commissioned from promising young composers for this occasion. Consuela tells me the commissions were her idea as a way to prove that the performances were really being given by Balusek. Before playing each work, the audience saw a video interview of each composer. 
The composers spoke of her or his intentions with the piece, the process of composition, the inspiration, but mostly they talked up Balusak as they rehearsed the work at his Coral Gables home. The audience watched as Balusak, in his wheelchair, in front of the Bosendorfer, would play a portion of the piece with his mind, then consult with the properly awed composer about it, then try again. There was laughing, jokes, and moments of dignified awe as the young composers watched Balusek move the idea he had formed about their music from his mind directly into the piano. My favorite of the composers, Cynthia Gazzone, put it this way. He's fired the middlemen, the hands. He can perform now without having to navigate the cumbersome bureaucracy of the body. It may be the purest music that's ever existed. That one-night-only engagement at Carnegie Hall turned into a world tour, I say to Consuela. I'm still in the jacket, still on the piano bench, still catching my breath from my second impromptu fantasy with Vaslav. 130 shows in 37 countries. Consuela, sitting in a chair to my left, says wistfully, she's traded the cafecito for a Malbec I can spell from here. Playing works no other pianist could play, I prompt. She smiles. Vaslavito was no longer limited to two hands and two feet. He could play duets by himself. He commissioned over two dozen works that would be impossible for any other person alive to play. The 97-note smash that ends Gazon's Singularity Sonata is still considered one of the defining moments of 21st century music. I ask for a little of that fantastic-smelling Malbec. But when she offers to get it for me, I get up, grab a glass from the wine rack, and pour it myself. Then I carry the bottle over to Consuela. As I'm refilling hers, I say, Lots of people were never convinced. They thought the performances were pre-recorded, that this was all a big money-making ploy, a last grab at fame. Consuela gives me a you-ain't-kidding look. Because how could you prove it at the end of the day, she complains. We were using the most advanced cybernetic technology in the world. It's not like you could just lift the Enural's hood and let people see for themselves how it worked. And then when Balusek died, she stops me short. He didn't die. Sorry, when his physical body could only be sustained through life support. The attacks became more vicious. That's when the media turned on you. Eh, I could take it because I knew the truth. And she completes the thought the way Cubans often do, with an attempted aphorism. When you have the truth on your side, you fear nothing. They called you a ghoul. They said you were using your dead husband to make yourself rich. Consuela smiles and shakes her head like she's dealing with a child. She contemplates her wine for a moment, then says he could still play the piano there from his hospital bed. All those fancy machines were saying he was dead, but then I would say, Vaslavito, would you play Moonlight Sonata for me? And then the Bosendorfer would immediately start to play it. There wasn't a doctor or nurse who would pull the plug while he could still play the piano. So it fell to me. But I wasn't going to rush anything. I waited until I was sure his migration was complete. And when it was, I had the life support turned off. And I was right, as you now know, Gabby. I sit at the bench again. I drink half my wine, and then I set it down on a side table. 
I'm still punchy from the aesthetic tidal wave that was Vaslav performing through me, and the Malbec's making me tipsy in the more traditional way. I'm getting a little loose, a little unprofessional. I exhale with unmastered longing and say, Yeah, if only everyone could wear this jacket for a little while. Consuela leans forward. So, you believe me? You know that Vaslavito's still alive. I tell her the truth, goddammit. No, I think Balasek is dead. I wish I could give you another answer. There's something leonine in the way Consuela's looking at me. I feel like I'm walking into one of her lawyerly traps, but for the life of me, I can't see what it is. And she doesn't tip her hand just yet. Innocent as a telenovela ingenue, she asks, But what about the music you just played? I sigh. (sighs) People have been leaving behind huge chunks of themselves after death for eons, Consuela. In their diaries and paintings and in the notes in their cookbooks and the stories they tell their children. The inural is the latest in a long line of media that help us capture some bit of who we were when we were alive and give it to the future. It's the birth of a new art form, one I already love. She frowns skeptically. That's it? My husband is art to you? I don't back down. Art makes life make sense. Art is a dead thing trying to tell the living how to live. There's an edge there. But again, I can't tell if it's real or just some manufactured anger required for some larger scheme of hers. Only one way to find out. I pick up my wine again and say, Look, I know you really believe Balasek's soul resides in the inural, and I don't want to insult you. But you've gone to court to plead your case and lost... You famously consulted with the Catholic Church on the matter, and Cardinal Bianchi's commission on cognitive prostheses was quite clear on the matter. And neurals are wonderful, but they're not human. So the law and the church agree. Whatever Vaslav's neural has retained for us, it's not his soul. The Malbecs almost kicked, but Consuela stops refilling hers to offer me a little. I say no, and she tips the rest of her bottle into her glass. What if they are wrong, she says to me. It's not really a question. The state and the church have changed their minds many, many times. What if 300 years from now they decide, actually, yes, inurals are alive. Sorry for any inconvenience. Well, I say... Assuming proper maintenance, Vaslav will still be around to hear that. So that's something. Yes, but what? What does it mean if Vaslav is still here 300 years from now? Consuela's urgent, eager. I'm getting increasingly leery of her. I don't know, I say, noncommittally. She peers at me, smiles a little. Her face decides something. She gets up and leaves the room. When she returns a half minute later, she has a chrome disc the size of a frisbee in her hand. Do you know what this is? She asks, and when I shake my head, this is a neodymium rare earth magnet. Super strong. I had to get special permission to buy one this big. I don't say anything. I watch. Will you sit on the sofa for a moment? She says sweetly. I move from the piano bench to the sofa. She puts the magnet on the floor and moves the piano bench out of the way. Then she slips out of her chancletas and gets on her knees and takes the magnet in both hands like a steering wheel. She knee walks over to the piano. I can see the magnet is already pulling itself toward the piano. She has to fight it. She hugs the magnet to her chest, lies on her back, and scoots herself under the Bosendorfer. 
what are you doing? I ask vaguely, wine in hand. She looks at me. I'd been so busy watching her antics with the magnet that I had neglected her face. Tears stream out of her eyes. This is why I brought you here, she says. Then she lifts the magnet upwards and the magnet launches itself into the piano. The jacket squeezes me so forcefully, I gasp. I can't inhale. This is what a python attack must feel like. I'm about to panic when the jacket slowly slackens its grip. Its strength fades. Then it's completely powerless. Consuela, still on her back under the piano, sobs into her hands. My addled brain slowly assembles a kind of sense of what has just happened. My mouth understands before any other part of me, because before realization has fully dawned in my mind, I can hear myself saying, No, oh God, no, 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 God, please, no. Almost a month after my interview with Consuela, Leniquia Yancey, my editor at The Squint, comes up to my desk with a manila envelope. Mail call, she cheerily chimes. If you're thinking it's weird for an editor to bring a reporter her mail, you're right. Leniquia's been checking in with me several times a day since that interview because, frankly, I've been a wreck. Useless at work and experiencing random panic attacks a few times a week. Every night, I dream of being crushed to death. I smile at Laniquia. You're a good friend. You don't have to bring my mail every day. Laniquia is constitutionally incapable of pessimism. So whenever her face grows solemn the way it has now, it's cause for worry. This time I really had to, she says. It's from Consuela Balusek. The squint's mostly a wallless workspace where Snoopy reporter types spend all day overhearing each other's shit. I look around, and yes, everyone's pretending not to look. Can we do this in your office? I ask Laniquia. A minute later, we're in her office. You open it, I say to her. She grabs a letter opener and starts slicing open the envelope. It's clean, by the way, she says. I had our guys check it. I make a WTF face. Consuela wouldn't try to kill us. She stops opening the letter to look at me incredulously. After what that crazy bitch did? Erasing her husband right in front of you? She thought she was freeing his soul. Her affect flattens. That is pure bullshit. She didn't think his soul was really in there. She just wanted the publicity. Think about how famous she is now. This was all part of her big plan. This is an old fight between Laniquia and me. I take my traditional tack, mocking her. You've been in San Francisco too long amongst the godless liberals. You've forgotten that there are radically different worldviews out there. Consuela's actions are totally consistent. They are. My therapist and I have been over it several times. If you believe in a human soul and in a Catholic heaven and that your husband's soul resides in an inural, then QED. You have prevented your husband from entering into an afterlife of bliss for your own mortal, selfish reasons. After much soul-searching, she decided she had to erase Balusek publicly in front of a reporter to show the world the pitfalls of that thinking. Immortals never get to go to heaven. They're destined to an eternal hell on earth. 
There is no way a woman of her intelligence and education could possibly believe that. Leniquia insists, arms crossed. All I would need is a week with Leniquia in Miami to prove to her how wrong she was. But for now, we've reached our traditional impasse. Are you going to open the letter? I ask her. She smiles and shakes her head clear. (laughs) Almost forgot. She finishes cutting through the top and blows open the envelope. From it, she extracts a picture and a note. We look at the picture together. It's a photograph of Consuela and Guy Salvatore, chair of the Board of Regents for the Smithsonian Institution. They're wearing expensive suits and are sitting on a piano bench, hands on knees. Behind them is a 97-key Bosendorfer Imperial Concert Grand. I grab the note. Dear Gabby, I read aloud. I've had Vaslavito's backup inural installed in the Bosendorfer and donated it to the Smithsonian. You'll be receiving an invitation for its debut. I hope by then you will have forgiven me. Please come. Que Dios te bendiga y proteja, Consuela. Leniquia's mouth hangs open for a good five seconds. Finally, all she can manage is, Bitch had a backup? But I understand completely. I can't get over the validity of her logic, so perfectly consistent. A soul can't be mechanically reproduced, goes Consuela's thinking. By definition, a soul is singular. So when they made the backup copy of the inural, they didn't copy Vaslav's soul, just his mind. In her eyes, she sent her husband to heaven by destroying his original inural. In the meantime, she's donated the soulless backup to the Smithsonian, thus preserving his art on earth forever. Inural ex machina, I say to the piece of paper in my hands. And... Breathe. Carlos Hernandez, y'all. Wow. I love his writing. I, I love his mind. I love his inventiveness and, and this conundrum that he presents to us. Um, is there life after death? And, and if so, do we have any influence over it? One of the things that's really interesting to me about this story is that it, it plays out this dynamic that, that we have, as human beings, been exploring um, for the whole of our existence. How close am I to being God? How close to the sun can I fly without burning my wings, right? And since the advent of medicine as scientific study, we've been heading down this road. And, you know, some say that at the end of the day, we will, we will learn that, that invisible force that holds matter together has a name or has a quality. And that quality may be love, an intangible. That quality may be God energy, something that we don't understand. It is, in fact, our desire to make sense of the inexplicability of the world that, uh, that has brought us to where we are scientifically. It's, it's, it's in our nature to want to push the envelope, to test the waters, to fly in the direction of the sun to see how far we can get before shit starts burning. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the best in the business, Julia Marie Smith. Our assistant producer is Audrey No. 
Our editing and our sound design is by the inimitable Misha Stanton. And thank you to our consulting producer, Mr. Adam Dybert. And, of course, our thanks to Sam Kiefer for his engineering expertise today. Thank you, Sam. I'm very grateful, as well, to Carlos Hernandez for allowing me to read his story today. You can find it in his collection entitled The Assimilated Cuban's Guide to Quantum Santeria, published by Rosarium. Carlos has a new novel out next year called Sal and Gabby Break the Universe. I can't wait. And hey... If you love the show and want to help other people find it, it's easy to do. Leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcast. And in your review, suggest a story that you'd like to hear on the podcast. We have been using your suggestions for our episodes. I've been loving it. We'll be back next week with another handpicked story. Or if you can't wait that long, listen to the next episode right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar, or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. LeVarBurton.com is my corner of the interwebs. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.